Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I'm going to talk to you about philosophy. No, it's not some motivational mumbo-jumbo to make us feel better when our patients don't get better. I'm talking about real philosophy. Old guys with long white beards and robes philosophy. That's why my guest today is Aristotle. No, not really. Even though Aristotle's not with us, I know you're really heartbroken over that. He left us with enough of his writings that we can understand and implement his point of view. You probably didn't know that Aristotle had anything to say about chiropractic philosophy, but he actually did. So without any further ado, Aristotle. As a graduate of LACC, I often joke with my students at Life University that going to LACC was a lot like going to chiropractic school. There were definitely some similarities. However, one of the things that was very conspicuously absent was anything that even vaguely looked like chiropractic philosophy. Now, when I was in my second year of undergrad, I had a friend whose dad was a double doctorate. He had a PhD in psychology and worked as a clinical psychologist, but he also had a Doctor of Divinity degree and taught philosophy at the college. We didn't just have conversations in their home, although we did do that, and he enjoyed challenging my thinking, but I decided to take his Eastern religion course at the college. I thought it would be an easy A. He obviously knew that I thought this, and he ensured that it was not. One thing he would do every class was to ask a question that nobody could answer. When it was obvious that nobody would even attempt it, he would then say, David, certainly you know the answer. The whole class would then turn to look at me, and he would stand at the front and smile. I can still see that smile in my mind's eye today. Now, maybe it was just a testament to how good of a psychologist he was, but he got me thinking about philosophy, and it became something I've enjoyed studying throughout my life, mostly for fun. Fast forward a little, and I graduated from chiropractic school knowing little about chiropractic philosophy. I'd read several of the Green books, I'd read Joseph Strauss's books, I'd listened to Fred Barge, Jim Sigafus, Ian Grossom, and Sid Williams. I was far more experienced in this area than most LACC students, and yet, I was still ignorant. I was unaware, but suspicious of my ignorance, as long as I was a student, but it wasn't until I graduated that I became painfully aware of how lacking I was in the area of chiropractic philosophy. Does it really make a difference? I didn't know how much of a difference it makes until I was in my first few years of practice. It was at this point, in these first few years, that I nearly suffered an existential crisis. I don't want to just gloss over that big word. Existentialism is the belief that life has no meaning except for the meaning we ascribe to it. That was how I saw so many chiropractors and their philosophy. If I asked them, what is your purpose as a chiropractor? They could say anything they want, and I'm expected to accept it as valid and true. The problem for me was that I knew that all intelligent philosophers reject existentialism as nonsense. That's not to say that I didn't want it to be true, so I spent some time trying to cram that ram peg into a square hole, but eventually had to reconcile that there is a meaning to life that is bigger than us and exists outside of us, and we are built with the unrelenting need to discover that meaning and live in it. As such, I reverted to my training in classical philosophy, so I have no doubt my perspective is probably different than most you've heard. Many years ago, I heard of a book called There's No Such Thing as Business Ethics. It took me a moment to figure it out, but the point was that ethics is ethics, and business does not have the right to redefine what is ethical for its own selfish purposes. I immediately thought, there's no such thing as chiropractic business, only business. My next thought was, there's no such thing as chiropractic philosophy, only philosophy. I knew then that I should fall back on my training in classical philosophy to guide my thoughts at arriving at tangible ideas. So that, that begs the question, 
Did Aristotle have anything to say that is applicable to chiropractic? Absolutely, he did. But first, we have to lay the groundwork by defining what we mean and what Aristotle meant by philosophy. Philosophy was, and still should be, viewed as the branch of science that tests things that are untestable. For example, where does sadness come from? Or what is the utility of anger? The emotions, in particular, are fertile ground for philosophical discovery and understanding. Philosophy also seeks to answer why certain thoughts lead to predictable actions. Philosophy is not meant to be something hypothetical and unreproducible. So let's look at Aristotle and set the rules for the game. I'm sure you're aware Socrates taught his student Plato, and Plato taught Aristotle. Each person's questions led to answers, which led to better questions and more answers. Each person picked up the chain where the other left off. This left Aristotle at the end of the line with both the best questions and answers, but it certainly didn't stop there. From Aristotle, it continued to St. Thomas Aquinas, to John Locke, and then John Stuart Mill. So let's start with Aristotle and look at the basics of good philosophy. Aristotle said that to know what something is, you must know four things about it. It's matter, it's form, it's power, and it's end or purpose. As an example, consider a chair. Its matter is what it's made of, wood. Its form is its physical pattern, a seat with a back, legs, and arms. Its power is what brings it into being, carpentry. And its end is what it's used for, something to sit on. Using this formula, we can determine Aristotle's view of philosophy. Aristotle would say that its matter is answers and questions. Its form is logical arguments. Its power is wonder. And its end is wisdom. Lest there be any confusion, the old joke says that knowledge is knowing that the tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. So let's play this game with chiropractic. Its matter is the adjustment. Its form is the correction of biomechanical and neurological dysfunction. Its power is the chiropractor. And its end is the restoration of health, coordination, or homeostasis. Admittedly, we haven't made it very far yet, but we are still building a foundation. So let's leave this for a moment and build in a different direction. Another concept of Aristotle is that everything we do, we do for a perceived good. This can be best explained by a poem. For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of the horse, the rider was lost. For the want of the rider, the message was lost. For the want of the message, the battle was lost. For the want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a little nail. What this poem shows us is that things are not only related, but they exist in a hierarchical order. The actions we take on one level are done because of a perceived value higher up the chain. Even with the adjustment, we are affecting a spinal unit, but our intention is to change or correct something much higher up the chain, like neurology or brain function. For this reason, Aristotle sought to ask the question, what is the highest human good? We should ask the question, what is the highest chiropractic good? He also rationalized that if there is no highest good, then we are merely taking action for a perceived higher good with no end in sight, making us no different than a hamster on a wheel, with much activity but no accomplishment and no end in sight. Aristotle found that all people, in all times and places, find the highest human good to be happiness. To this end, he finds that all things we do are pushing us towards this eventual endpoint. We can certainly see that even in chiropractic, we are moving our patients toward a state of happiness as we improve their health and function. However, I think it would be beneficial to slightly alter the question. 
What is the highest chiropractic good? The highest chiropractic good must have two qualities. First, other goods would be sought for its sake. And second, it would be sought only for its own sake. I would argue that the highest chiropractic good is homeostasis or perfect adaptability to our environment, what we would essentially define as the definition of life. Aristotle took this concept a bit further. He called this highest good an ethic, stating that all philosophy must begin with an understanding of the ethics of the subject, meaning the highest common good. The implication of this is that any version of chiropractic that does not achieve heightened homeostasis or adaptability would be deemed unethical. More importantly, if it causes impaired adaptability, then it is certainly unethical. Now, maybe you don't like my definition of the highest chiropractic good. Perhaps you would say the highest chiropractic good is merely the adjustment itself. As long as you make an adjustment, then you've achieved your goal, regardless of how the patient responds. So I would ask you this question. What do you think is your patient's view of the highest chiropractic good? Are they there to get an adjustment, regardless of how it makes them feel? What if they walked in and rolled out in a wheelchair? Are they still there just for an adjustment? I would argue that they are not. They are there because they understand that better integration of their nervous system will lead to greater health as demonstrated by better adaptability to their environment, and that will lead them toward happiness. If you want to know what your patients perceive as the highest chiropractic good, then you need to know why they are in your office, and I doubt it's merely to hear their bones and joints make noise regardless of the outcome. In my first few years of practice, my existential crisis was born from the recognition that I didn't really know why I was there. I asked myself, what is my job description? If I can't answer that question, then how are my patients going to be able to answer that question? Is my job to merely move the bone and accept no responsibility for what happens after that? I had certainly heard that view expressed, but I knew that was really just an excuse for giving bad adjustments to justify working at a faster pace than their ability would allow. I was building a foundation, and I knew the sooner you compromise, the further that will take you off course over the course of your career. I didn't want to do that, so I kept coming back to Aristotle to find a philosophy that made sense. Aristotle has a few more concepts that I think are important. The first is his definition of excellence. He said that excellence is self-evident because it always produces the highest good. Hopefully, you now have enough insight into Aristotle's view to understand what he really meant by that. He further explained this by something called the doctrine of the mean. He found that the highest good was never at the extreme, but it was always found at the balancing point between two opposite and equally as damaging extremes. For example, courage lies between the extremes of cowardice and foolhardy. Courage, then, is a virtue because it forces one to find this balancing point, which cannot be found by accident. He further stated that excellence is never an accident. It's always the result of high intention, sincere effort, and intelligent execution. It represents the wise choice of many alternatives. Choice, not chance, determines your destiny. Following this line of thought, the good of a racehorse might be to race, but the highest good of a racehorse is to race excellently. In like manner, we could say the good of a chiropractor is to adjust, but the highest good of a chiropractor is to adjust excellently. Now, we have an entirely new problem. How do we define excellence in chiropractic? Well, excellence must be defined by our ability to achieve our highest good with consistency. By my thinking, there's no way that we can define our highest good by merely moving bones and making noise. What we do must cause a change in the function of a patient, but that change must be good, meaning more adaptability, and it must be obvious, not a function of wishful thinking and ego. 
This was my existential crisis. There must be more to chiropractic than whatever meaning I choose to ascribe to it. And there must be a standard that applies to all of us equally. This really had nothing to do with anyone else. And I wasn't looking to criticize what anyone else was doing. The problem was, how do I hit a target if there's no target to hit? I can hit anything and then say after the fact, that's what I was aiming for. Additionally, I can also look at others and know if they are hitting the target or simply claiming to hit a target after the fact, regardless of what they actually hit. So, to steal a line from Joe Nego, I came to find that most chiropractors aim for nothing and hit it with incredible accuracy. So I took this training from Aristotle and I began to work my way forward with logical thinking. In my first couple years of practice, I had an interesting experience. My brother Chris, who you met in episode 39, was just graduating from high school. He was considering chiropractic for his future, and I came up with a hypothesis that I wanted to test. I told him it was my theory that the biggest barrier to acquiring adjusting skill was the fact that students know too much about anatomy and biomechanics. This knowledge actually impedes their development instead of being an essential component of it. Since the Gonstead seated cervical is largely considered to be the most difficult adjustment to learn, I decided I would teach him how to do it without any prior knowledge, and I hypothesized he would pick it up much faster that way. We did a little training, but our training consisted of do what I do and mimic me rather than trying to explain it anatomically or scientifically. About three months in, my mom had a neck problem, and I couldn't make it home to help her. I half-jokingly suggested she have Chris do it. She was desperate enough that she eventually conceded, and he actually pulled it off and solved the problem. Just three months after we started the process. The amazing thing, and the part I'll never forget, is that Chris then said to me, I understand chiropractic philosophy. What do you understand, I asked. He said, chiropractic philosophy isn't something we have to study or learn, but when you have the ability to move bones and get people well, the philosophy reveals itself. All you have to do is uncover it and pay attention. That was a huge aha moment for me because I realized that most Gonstead doctors have a different view of philosophy and that's because we have a different experience with the adjustment and its effects. So I went back to the drawing board and I called on my limited experience at that time to answer some very serious questions. What is a subluxation? How do I know when a subluxation is corrected? Is it a continuum where a little push in the right direction is good, but a bigger push is even better? My experience at that point had already taught me that there's a point that if you go even the tiniest measurable amount past that, you have corrected the subluxation. But if you fall short by even the tiniest measurable amount, you have not corrected the subluxation. I realized then that if I push the vertebra in the right direction, but I fall short, it's fair to say that I helped the patient, but I cannot say that I corrected the subluxation. How much good is there in helping the patient if I never correct the subluxation? Doesn't this mean that the highest good of chiropractic is to correct the subluxation, not to merely help the patient, whatever we think that means? My mind immediately turned to my experience playing quarterback. For a pass to be complete, it must be thrown well, but it must also be caught. A pass may be well thrown, but still not caught, and it can be caught even though it was not thrown well. Ultimately, there is no record except the mere fact that it was caught or it wasn't. An adjustment may be received even though it was poorly delivered, and it may not be received even though it was expertly delivered. In the end, it will only change physiology if it is both delivered and received. The greater the skill behind the delivery, the greater the chance it will be received, but the adjustment must be complete or else we failed in our objective. Oh, but you can deliver an adjustment and nothing moves, but the patient still gets better, you might say. Yes, but are they completely restored? 
If the patient should be 100% better, but in your hands they are only 80% better, you haven't made them 80% better. You've cheated them out of 20%. This isn't merely a hypothetical situation. I do a lecture in my Gonstead class where I use two YouTube videos. Both are cases of torticollis. After teaching my class how to distinguish between spasmodic and non-spasmodic torticollis, I then show them these two videos. In the first, they can clearly see that the doctor gets it right and the patient is 100% improved in less than 24 hours. In the second video, the doctor gets it wrong. Four days later, the patient has approximately 80% improvement by the doctor's own admission. The doctor is very proud to say that he helped this patient to 80% improvement, but by perspective, my students can see that he actually cheated that patient at a 20% improvement because he did the wrong thing. This right here is the intersection between philosophy and science, theory and practice. I don't do this demonstration to ridicule or insult anyone, but I recognize that I must show these students before they graduate that what you do matters. If you're getting the patient better, instead of patting yourself on the back for 10% improvement, recognize that someone else might be able to get the other 90% and hold yourself accountable for getting the rest of that result. The problem with philosophy, Aristotle's way, was that it set the bar incredibly high and forced me to hold myself accountable for that high standard. Not everybody wants to do that. D.D. Palmer wrote a very powerful statement in his 1910 text. In describing the state of chiropractic just 15 short years after it began, he said, Already unprincipled shysters have sought to change the profession. They portray themselves as more than they are and chiropractic as less than it is. Look on YouTube. Look on social media. Can you not see this happening today? Chiropractors want to be famous, which they don't deserve, and they demean the profession in the process, which it doesn't deserve. I mean seriously, hitting people with hammers? Sorry, but that isn't part of any chiropractic school's curriculum, and for good reason. Let's say a patient has a digestive disorder. Let's say it's an acid problem caused by an alkaline gut due to a chronic sympathetic subluxation. Obviously, I can find the subluxation and adjust it, and I should do that. But let's assume I'm not very good at doing that, so my adjustment has little to no effect on the patient's symptoms. What am I likely to do next? Supplement, of course. Whether I use a supplement like standard process, which is obviously a good thing, or I use drugs to manipulate physiology, in either case, am I actually doing anything to aid in subluxation correction? What if I have a patient who's lost their cervical curve? That loss is due to subluxation. But again, if my adjustment isn't correcting this, I'm tempted to supplement with exercises or something that I think will help to force this curve into the neck. But is a loss of cervical curve the cause of a subluxation? Of course not. We all know that or at least we should. The loss of cervical curve is an adaptive, defensive position to protect the disc and maintain the center of gravity so we can continue to walk. Therefore, is it possible that reestablishing the curve without correcting the subluxation could make the subluxation worse? Yes, because we've removed the compensation and forced more weight-bearing pressure back onto the dysfunctional disc. If we remember the highest good of chiropractic, we remember that correcting the subluxation will correct the cervical curve or the alkaline stomach condition, but forcing a curve or forcing acidity into the digestive system will never correct the underlying subluxation. Lest you think the philosophy is merely a code word for hypothetically or ideally, I want you to know that this is intensely practical. I just had my T12 adjusted yesterday. Prior to that, I was having trouble with digestion regardless of what I ate. Even water was giving me issues if I drank too much at one time. After the adjustment, I felt a change in the musculature and sensation in my back, but then discovered I could eat with no distress whatsoever, and the problem hasn't come back. 
Nothing I could do could replace or mimic the effect of the adjustment, including a poor adjustment. If we go back to Aristotle, we find that he said that the good of a human soul lies in the activity of using and following reason, and its highest good lies in the activity of using it and following it excellently. I've never met a person who didn't think they were using reason, but I've certainly met people who weren't very good at it. Aristotle would argue that the effectiveness of your reason will be found in the evidence of your life. Aristotle said that excellence is obvious because it perpetually creates good. At this point, we're only scratching the surface of what Aristotle had to say, and you're probably thinking, what difference does it make anyway? Once you solve the problem of answering very basic questions like, what is chiropractic and what is a subluxation, you can then begin to critically evaluate more complicated questions. Consider the cervical spine adjustment. What is P to A? Is it purely P to A, or is it just P to A-ish, with a lot of lateral to medial, or a lot of rotation? Should the next muscles be relaxed or contracted? As Dr. Ian pointed out, are we moving the bone, or are we repositioning it to another bone? What is the definition of a perfect adjustment? How do you know? These are philosophical questions that implore us to use logic and reason, but the fact that they are untestable does not make them any less important. I realized one day that it was impossible for me to deliver a great adjustment if I didn't have a definition of what a great adjustment is. That thought naturally led me to the conclusion that it couldn't have anything to do with the noise it makes. If that's true, then it cannot be about setting it as deeply as possible, but it's about setting the bone just the right amount. Well, how much is the right amount? That cannot be a constant, but it must be relative to each subluxation. That means I'm going to need a lot more skill if I'm going to be able to figure that out. This was the thinking process that I had to go through in my first few years. I won't say it wasn't a painful or frustrating process, but it was so necessary to create a framework for all future learning. As you can probably tell, I'm no fan of a philosophy that merely becomes an excuse to give bad adjustments and still pat yourself on the back for helping the world. When I finally got my mind focused on the philosophy of chiropractic, it gave me a reason to go to work each day. It gave me a purpose. Why am I here? To correct subluxations. Can I know the moment I make an adjustment if I've made this correction? Yes. Can I also know in that same moment if I did not correct the subluxation? Yes. Can I draw logical conclusions about what to expect in either situation? Yes. The purpose of philosophy when applied correctly is that it gives us clear vision and a target to aim for. What's your reason for being a chiropractor? If it begins and ends with money, I can show you much easier ways to make a living. The politically correct answer is that it's all about my patients. I just love my patients. No, you don't. Not all of them. What's the real reason? Look deep. Be honest with yourself. What is your reason for being a chiropractor? Is it the power of healing people with your hands? The pursuit of technical mastery? Is it fame and prestige? You want people to look up to you and be awed by your abilities? Is your reason for being a chiropractor based in what it can do for you? Or is it based in what you can do for chiropractic? It was a revolutionary thought for me when I stopped thinking about how I represent myself. Instead, and I still think of it this way to this day, in every interaction that I have with a patient or a student, my goal is to represent you in the very best way that I can, to represent chiropractic in the very best way that I can. That's right, it's no longer about trying to give myself a good name, it's about trying to give chiropractic, and more specifically, Gonstead Chiropractic, a good name. When I think in terms of representing you well, I become less tolerant of my laziness and my mistakes. 
and I'm driven to do the very best I can to represent you well. I think that this is the highest good of the chiropractor. Now, I must take a moment to discuss social media. Obviously, this is not something I had to deal with for most of my career, but I do recognize that in today's world, it's become a necessary evil. Look, I'm doing a podcast that is listened to all over the world. When I used to do my radio show, that was only heard within 100 miles of where I lived. Obviously, things change. The stakes are higher, and we're all forced to become performers. I'm going to caution you that if you're going to play that game, then you better get philosophically grounded first. Otherwise, the need to produce content will drive you to compromise, slip, or sensationalize because you're more interested in gaining an audience than you are in staying true to chiropractic. Chiropractic is what it is, and none of us have the right to redefine it based on our own selfish desires to gain an audience. This was a conclusion that I came to when I first started my radio show, and I've only grown more firm in that conviction over the years. Another lesson I've learned, and I was just talking with another instructor about this, is to never get high on your own press, especially when you're early on in your career. Yes, you're going to help people, and they're going to praise you for what you've done. As I told this instructor, if I'm not going to listen to the criticism of people who are unqualified to criticize me, then I also can't listen to the praise of people who are unqualified to praise me. Instead, I have to stay true to what I know, and philosophy is the guiding force behind that. Well, I hope that helps you to see the relevant role that philosophy plays in daily practice. I hope you also gained a little respect for Aristotle and his chiropractic philosophy. Philosophy is not meant to be motivational, although it can be. Philosophy is meant to be intensely practical and to keep us in touch with reality. It's actually anti-ideological because it cannot be divorced from reality. I want to thank all you guys for your incredible support. You propelled our recent interview with Dr. Ian to our most popular episode, and you did it in just a little over a week. I've been talking with Dr. Ian, and we're going to come back with a part two and delve into some advanced concepts for seeing acute patients. So stay on the lookout for that episode. Additionally, I'm going to be doing a workshop on the campus of Life University with Dr. Mike Frazetta and Dr. Bryce Kelling. That workshop will be May 22nd. If you would like to attend and you're a chiropractic student or a practicing doctor, you can reach out to the Gonstead Club at Life University for more details. I hope you learned something today, and I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Thank <laughs> you.